Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of The Hustle. So this is my conversation with filmmaker Blair Foster. Now Blair is a two-time Emmy-winning documentarian, and our conversation revolves primarily around the documentary that she co-directed with Alex Gibney about Rolling Stone Magazine's 50th anniversary. It came out last fall. It's called Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge. Now I watched it on HBO last fall. You may have too. And as you guys know, Jan Wenner has been very top of mind for me lately. Uh, Shortly after uh, seeing her movie, I read the book Joe Hagen wrote called Sticky Fingers about Jan. And so I just have a lot of thoughts and uh, opinions and theories that I'm sort of working on right now that I wanted to discuss with somebody. Frankly, I don't know if Blair was prepared for that. She probably thought that we were just going to have a fun, lighthearted conversation around filmmaking, which we did. But I also really wanted to get into it and chew a little bit on the topic of Jan Wenner. And so we did that too. I hope I didn't, you know, blow her away or anything like that. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Rolling Stone Magazine has been a huge part of my life for a little over 30 years now, for better or worse. And so I was really glad to have the opportunity to talk with somebody who would know the magazine and know Jan so intimately. Now, um, in addition to working on this Rolling Stone documentary, you may know Blair from some of the other movies that she's worked on, music-related documentaries specifically, like the one on George Harrison that was on HBO a couple years ago, as well as the James Brown and Frank Sinatra documentaries, and the Eagles documentary, which is such a touchstone in culture today. So we discuss about we discuss all those things. Um, we touch on the first few lightly. Uh, we get a little more in depth on the Eagles near the end. So I hope you guys will check this out. The reason we're having this conversation is because Stories from the Edge has been expanded slightly and is being released on streaming services like iTunes and on demand. And so um, that's primarily what this is about: is sort of promoting that. Hopefully you guys, if you've been interested in seeing this movie or on the fence, you will seek it out and go check it out. If you're a music lover, it's basically mandatory, isn't it? So anyway, enjoy my conversation with Blair. So, okay, so I, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background. I, I put out a weekly music podcast. Um, I typically talk to musicians, not always, but um, I have a little bit of a relationship with CeCe Cronin because she helped me interview Fran Strine of the Hired Gun documentary. And so when she had reached out to me about whether or not I would be interested in talking with you, I said yes, because Rolling Stone's been so kind of in the zeitgeist lately, you know, with uh, Mm -hmm. the 50th anniversary. And I had just finished reading that Jan Wenner book, Sticky Fingers by (laughs) Joe Hagen. Yep. And so I thought, yeah, I want to get, you know, I want to dive into some of this stuff while it's still fresh. And I understand you guys are, do, are have like stream, the movie is, well, maybe you can explain it better than I can, but the movie's being broken <laughs> into pieces and streamed or something or put out in with bonus features and episodes. What's the deal? <laughs> so it originally aired on HBO as in two parts, a two, two hour part. And and then so and then we created really for an international audience and then I guess this is what they're using now also for iTunes and on demand. Mm-hmm. We created we broke it into six uh, into six parts mm-hmm. and we did add I'm trying to think two sections 
um, to to it as well. So it's it's now even longer than the four the original four hour series. Okay. So, and and then I think and in addition I think there are some some bonus features as as well. And what are what are the so, additions? So yeah, no, we're excited. Yeah, what's the we stuff added, that's in there now? We added a story about uh, David Bowie. Oh, um, thank you. Yes. <laughs> sort of, it's centered around Cameron Crowe's interview with mm. David Bowie, and we he very generously gave us some audio from that interview. Wow. And so there's a, a nice David Bowie piece, and then actually another sort of Cameron Crowe related story in some ways, which is the story of Rolling Stone softball team playing the Eagles. I heard about this. Um, <laughs> yes. So, and it's funny because we did a documentary several years ago about the Eagles, mm -hmm. which um, kind of tells the Eagles side of it. Now we get to tell the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. side of it. So we've done the complete uh, story of the Rolling Stones Eagles softball match. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Okay, good. Good. Boy, okay. Well, I have a lot I want to talk to you about. And if you don't mind, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit, and then we'll work our way back up into Rolling Stone, because we'll go deep on that uh, documentary. But you have, I think, a job that most music lovers would give anything to for, which is to make <laughs> rock and roll documentaries. <laughs> and uh, I mean, among other things, of course. But how did this happen? Where did you grow up? And did you always want to be a filmmaker? Um, I grew up in Florida. And... Yeah. I, it took me a long time actually to figure out what I wanted to do. I was a very kind of nerdy kid and I loved to read. I loved history. I loved popular culture, music, film, TV. And it, it wasn't really until I kind of got to my 30s that I found myself making documentary films. And uh, I had actually gone to graduate school to study history. Hmm. And one of my professors was an advisor on a, his, on a historical documentary. And the filmmakers came and spoke to my class. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. And so I ended up doing an internship on that. And hmm. the, I'll never forget uh, the, the producer, the, the filmmaker of that series, who I'm, I'm still in touch with to this day. He said, I get paid to learn. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's mm. what I want to do. Mm. <laughs> How do I do that? Yeah. Um, and so I I love to read. I love to research. And that's kind of I, I've worked on a number kind of, of historical documentaries, political documentaries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was by sheer luck that I ended up working on a documentary about George Harrison that yeah. Martin Scorsese directed. I saw that and too. I was on it was you know, everyone kind of, if you're lucky, you have that sort of formative experience in yeah. your life and in your career. And that was it for me. I worked on that film for three and a half years. Um, it was a really intense, challenging, very rewarding experience for me. Wow. And so coming out of that, I, you know, I was getting a lot of potential projects to work on that were very music related because mm. music documentaries are, are, have their own unique challenges. As I'm sure you're aware, you know, not just sort of interviewing musicians, but the, the licensing of music yeah. is very challenging and the, the foot finding the footage and mm -hmm. all of that. It's a very kind of specific set of skills and knowledge. So were you not, was but, the plan all along not then to, you had a drive to make music documentaries? It just sort of, because you earned your bona fides on the George Harrison one, that's kind of where your <laughs> path led led you? Exactly. Ah. Exactly. And so, See, that's not I mean, even and, fair. I, 
Some of us who I would know. give anything to do that should deserve that job. I'm just kidding. I'm I just know. Kidding. No, I, I, I'm always sort of like reluctant to tell that story because it's, uh, it's really, I just talk about falling into, yeah. you know, having one of the greatest strokes of luck ever. Um, yeah. It really, and, and to have the first music documentary you work on be about a beetle. I yeah. mean, it, I, I really okay. like doesn't get better than that. It was wonderful. And you know, coming out of that, then I, 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 I worked on the, the the history of the eagles about the eagles that one's its and own conversation right there um it is <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is that that's cha- probably that changed. the most known of yes what I've done. yes <laughs> um let me go back for a minute when you say because this is the these are kind of the transitions that i think a lot of people who would who don't have jobs like this are interested in when you say that you got lucky enough to be asked to work on the george harrison documentary <laughs> how does that happen do you, are you, do you, you know what I mean? Like what granularly yeah. happened? Did you meet Martin yeah. Scorsese? Did someone recommend you? Did you put it, send it in a job application like normal people do? What, how did this happen? So I had worked on a film with a, a filmmaker named Alex Gibney, of who course. is one of the great documentary filmmakers. Absolutely. You know, it was a few years out from a film he did called Enron, the smartest guys in the room, which is one of the all time great classic documentary. I completely agree. I had worked on a film with him called Taxi to the Dark Side, yeah. which was a very intense film about U.S. interrogation policy, Guantanamo and Iraq. And years earlier, Alex had been the series producer for a series called The Blues, which was mm. on PBS. I remember that. Um, yeah. Landmark series where different directors, including Martin Scorsese, <clears throat> Clint Eastwood, Mike Figgis, each uh, then vendors, each um, directed an episode and, and, and the whole series encompassed the history of the blues. Mm-hmm. And so Alex had had a relationship with Scorsese because of that. And um, after Taxi to the Dark Side, um, I was looking for work and Alex had run into um, the uh, producer, Scorsese's producer, a woman named Mark, Margaret Bodie that he mm-hmm. had worked with and was friends with from the blues. And she happened to mention they were looking for someone for this George Harrison documentary. And so Alex recommended me and then it was going to be a a longer project and and an intense project. And I think they wanted someone that had experience, but wasn't too experienced, Mm -hmm. you know, someone that was going to be able to sort of grow with the project. Right. And I kind of was in that sweet spot. I, I was, I would not have described myself as a, like a seasoned, producer or filmmaker at that time in any way. I had been doing it for several years, mm-hmm. but was not like, I never worked on a music documentary. Um, but they, I think they really, they're so, they're just so brilliant. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, brilliant is not a word I use lightly and they're, right. they're very savvy and, and they know, they know what they're doing. And mm-hmm. so they, they knew having someone that was, was going to grow with the project was going to be the right fit for them. And, and so, and then, yeah, that I got recommended for that and did a, a series it. of interviews for it and, um, and just got lucky. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah. And if this is too personal or whatever, please, uh, one of the things we try to touch <laughs> on on the podcast is sort of the business side of things and how people make a living while they're doing their creative <laughs> endeavors. So yeah. in a situation yeah. like that, are you, uh, put on retainer do you um start receiving like a you know like a salary or as a 
production assistant or whatever it is that you're doing, whatever your job is on that. Is that how that kind of thing works? Or is it, I don't know, like once it gets sold, then you go back and make some money residually? How does this work? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. The, the documentary world, I, I'm going to generalize a little bit, but, uh-huh. but by and large, is really a world of freelancers. Okay, that's why and, I asked, because I, I thought that might be the case. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm a freelancer, and I, I've worked with Alex now for almost 10 years now, so mm-hmm. I, I've really, I, I, I'm a sort of, I guess, permalancer, I'm not sure how, you, but I, I also have other projects I do that aren't with Alex, but okay. um, I've never been on staff anywhere, okay. and projects generally kind of happen in two ways. There's, there's a, a few other ways, but the two major ways are somebody like a Netflix or HBO will say, we want to pay to have this documentary made. Mm-hmm. And they go out and they hire a director and their production company and they, they fund it. Mm-hmm. The more common way is funds are raised to mm-hmm. make a film. And, and that can be through a variety of sources. Mm-hmm. And then the film is sold to an HBO or Netflix or Hulu or whoever. So in the case of George Harrison, it was a privately funded film and HBO then toward the end came in and bought it. Okay. So that's why like a festival like Sundance or the Toronto film festival are such a big deal because filmmakers who have privately financed their film are going there in the hopes of selling it to someone who's going to put it out in the world. I think it's interesting to consider the dichotomy of someone, and I'm projecting this may not be true, but someone like you, who's a new filmmaker in a, in an, we all know that the creative arts don't, don't pay very well, you know, unless you're at the tippy top. <laughs> so someone like you, who's a fairly young in their filmmaking career is working on this project as prestige as this George Harrison documentary. But yet while you're working on it, you might be living off tuna fish. You know what I mean? Because even though you're working on something that's prestigious that the whole world's going to see, your actual regular everyday life is, you know, you're struggling to get by like anyone else because it's not like you're Martin Scorsese who has millions of dollars coming in. You're the you're the person still trying to kind of work their way up. You know what I mean? No, totally. I always tell, you know, when young people are starting out, I'm always, I always say that if, if you want to get rich and famous documentary is not the place for you. Um, <laughs> right. And, but it's great because that attracts the kind of people who genuinely feel passionate yeah. about what they do. They're, yeah. they're not doing it for money or fame. And so uh, across the board, the, the best aspect of this profession is, is who I work with. Mm-hmm. It, it, there are, ex- they are extraordinary people, very smart, very talented, very hardworking, so dedicated to what they do. And, and that makes for such a great work environment. I can imagine. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's a trade-off. You're, you're right. You're not, although I will say, I mean, I'm not exactly starving, but. No, um, I know. But I'm just saying people leave you know, are regular people. It's a modest people. living, I yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, got it. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I'm not trying to embellish. I'm just saying it. We as regular no, people no, sometimes forget that creative people are regular people too. They just work on things that the whole world sees. And therefore, you know, there's more kind of glitz and glam associated, even though at the end of the day, they they go home and have regular lives as well. A hundred percent. And it's funny because 
over the course of working on these music documentaries, I really started to realize like that's actually the vast majority of musicians' life yeah, too, sure you know, is. who are out there. Kind of, I worked on a documentary about James Brown, and just yeah. we interviewed as many of his band members as we could, and it's like that, you know, that's a hard yeah. life and not particularly well paid. And you're right; it sort of seems like oh, the glamorous life of the musician. It's it's tough. I yeah. I have enormous respect for what they do. That's exactly the point of this podcast that I have, which is to kind of find out how people make a living. That's why it's called The Hustle, because you got to kind of hustle to keep it right. going and keep, exactly. you know, find your next gig, keep your legacy alive, all that kind of stuff. And what we peek a little behind the curtain. Uh, anyway, so let me ask you this. You know, you're the you're the music documentary person. But when you what was your dream? What would you like to make documentaries on plants? Or what, you know, what <laughs> would you rather work for planet Earth? What What's the thing that you'd rather oh, do? Oh, no, no, no. Years and years ago when I was first starting out, if you had told me kind of like, well, what are your dream projects? I mean, a documentary about James Brown was one of them. Oh, and I yeah. actually got to do that. You yeah. know, that, that really was a, an actual dream come true. I, I think I feel really lucky because I when you work in documentary, you can work. I, I have many interests, so I... I, I love current events and politics. I've worked on some political... I, I did a documentary for Netflix while I was working on Rolling Stone called Get Me Roger Stone, know. you know, which is which is very different. Um, so I, I get to do things that kind of reflect my sort of weird range of interest. So, yeah. but music, but James Brown, I, I you know, I've always said one of my dream projects would be Aretha Franklin. Oh, uh, um, there you go. Yeah. Just really, yeah. that that would be just so huge yeah, <laughs> for me. She's, I agree. She's someone that was formative for me when I was young. And uh, um, yeah. but no, I, I'm definitely where I want to be. I think the, and it's not, they're not, what's interesting to me, I realize, especially on the James Brown doc, but even Oakley, I did a doc about Frank, uh, Frank Sinatra as well. Mm -hmm. These docs are so much more than about music, and not to take away from music because the music is amazing. Sure. But you know, it, it's what goes into the, it's the what goes into their music and what forms these people. It's the time, it's the politics, it's the culture around them. Absolutely. Um, and so all yeah. of that is so interesting to me. Well, everything you're saying, each one of these movies, I mean, deserves their own hour-long conversation. <laughs> I could go deep on James Brown and uh, Frank Sinatra, too. But one thing I, I will say, I uh, that Roger Stone documentary had been on my watch list for a, a year. <laughs> and I finally, when I knew I was going to, when you, I knew you worked on it, I watched it the other day. We don't have to get too deep in it, but it just made me so angry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh... it just it 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 offends me that there are people that I am a, that many of us are suckers enough that there are people out there puppet masters kind of doing this to our lives and it's a game to them and they're good at it they're good at it and uh, it just it was like this seedy underbelly to a culture that I just I I'm so sad exists you know. But. It's it's like going into the kitchen at night and turning on the light and seeing all the roaches yes. scatter. That's so it. It's, That's it's, perfect. It's, and it it felt like, but that you you need to know that that's there. Yeah. You, know, you need to know that that's how you have to turn the light on to it yeah. to, to know about it. But it was it was um, 
yeah, it was a tough one to work on. And I honestly was happy that I, I had Rolling Stone <laughs> that yeah. I was you know, that I could come back to a place, you know, where I was working on something that was about quality journalism and right. was about, you know, celebrating, um, pop, positive things. So, yeah, I um, agree. Uh, okay, let's get into Rolling Stone, and um, I will. I do want to talk about the Eagles because I have a feeling a lot of people will be chomping at the bit. But let's save that to the end because that's what we're here to talk about is the Rolling Stone documentary. Okay. So first and foremost, I assume it was planned all along, however long this had been in production, to release this around the 50th anniversary of Rolling Stone. So maybe three or four years ago, how did this project come to you? Did Jan Winner, um, and and I think you, I'm sure you know that with the Joe Hagen book being out there. Um, at the same time, like it or not, your movie and his book are being sort of viewed as like polarities or uh, it, like different mm-hmm. sides to this story. Yeah. One is very reverential and um, honorary, and the other is dirty and behind the scenes and <laughs> you know and ugly. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. I, whether yeah. you wanted it that way or not, your movie is being viewed as like the the vanilla side of. Jan Wenner and his is the dirty, spicy side. You know what I mean? So how did oh, this totally. how did this happen? How did it come to you? When did it come to you? So I mean, you're totally right. Jan wanted to do something to uh, to mark the 50th anniversary, and there were there were a number of things. The biography had been in the works for several years. Jan went to HBO, mm-hmm. and then HBO in turn went to Alex Gibney, the mm-hmm. director and filmmaker I mentioned earlier, and this would have been, let's see, we started, uh, this is 2018. So we started in 2016 on the, in about in February of 2016, we started on the documentary. It took us about 18 months start to okay. finish mm-hmm. to do the documentary. So we were, we were not nearly working as long as, uh, Joe Hagan was, okay. um, okay. but we, we knew he was working on a biography. We took the project on, because and, and we were quite clear from the start with Jan and with HBO that we didn't want to do a history of the magazine, hmm. that we wanted to do a history of the f- last 50 years through the eyes of the magazine. Oh, and we okay, wanted to focus on the writing hmm. and the journalism, because Alex is really a journalist, I think, at heart. And mm-hmm. his, his father was a very prominent uh, print journalist. His brother is currently a, a, a journalist. And we and Alex had done a documentary about Hunter Thompson hmm. and he's really someone that admires uh, great writing and great journalism. And so right from the start, we knew that that was the approach we were going to take and that we were going to focus on stories in the magazine and, and, and on the writers, more on the writers and less on Jan himself. Although Mm -hmm. of course Jan figures into it and, and, you know, Jan started it and all, all due respect and credit to him, but he didn't do it alone. And, and, and Jan will say, and and he will give credit to the extraordinary list of writers that have gone through and continue to go through the magazine. So I think he was comfortable with us not really shining a light on him, partly because he knew there was this biography being written about him, but also because he knew he, he really wanted the magazine itself celebrated, mm. not okay. himself. So that was a plan from the start. And then it was just sort of figuring out, okay, well, which, what stories are we going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how are we going to do this? How did and you decide those we, stories? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Again, we knew from the start that it was going to be a combination of music and politics mm. and culture that it wasn't just going to be all music 
because the magazine, really from the early days, I was surprised. I went back. John has all the physical magazines. He has them bound, and he, he, he let me take the first couple of years of the magazine because I wanted to read it physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they have an extensive, internally, they have an extensive uh, online archive, and you could, we could go online to read the magazines, but it, it's much more fun to read it, sure. and have it in your hands. How would people and, and have read it? Ads and, yeah. yeah, and so we, we went through and read the first few years, and right from the start, it's very, it's clearly about music, but it's about all of the culture around that music. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's 1968 and it's, a, it's about uh, um, the politics around the music. It's about the drugs. It's about sex. It's, it's about everything. So um, the magazine, actually, when you go back, the, the, the roots of it are still very present in, like you see the DNA in the magazine today, like mm-hmm. that not a lot has changed in some ways. The music and the people they cover have changed, but mm-hmm. the I, the approach to it is pretty similar to is it to back in the original uh, when it first started. Okay, and we dove in, and and I had a a, a few young researchers on the team because I wanted to see kind of what twenty somethings would respond mm-hmm. to. You know, I'm 48, so I grew up reading magazine in the 80s. Yeah, Alex is in his mid 60s, so you know he was reading the magazine from the start. So we wanted to have a sort of like something that would appeal to anyone of any age. I, I remember I was the, the Patty Hearst story yeah. was riveting to yeah. me. And I was trying to explain to the young researchers, like, you know, who she was and why this was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, imagine if Kim Kardashian got kidnapped right. and then she went and robbed a bank with her kidnappers, yeah. you know, like yeah. the, the you know what would how would the country respond to that that's yeah. what we're talking about here. yeah um and they were so into it and, okay. it and it was fun to see them you know some of these guys saw bruce springsteen as like their dad's music yeah and then we they watched bruce springsteen at hammersmith odeon in 1976 77 they were mm. blown away right like, oh my god yeah um you, you could argue um if there's one of the criticisms of Rolling Stones today, the magazine today, is that they still give more credence to your dad's rock and roll than mm-hmm. other magazines would. You know, they've, and this is something that became crystal clear to me when I was reading Joe Hagen's book is that pretty much the framework for modern rock criticism and value of who is good and who isn't and who deserves to be on Mount Rushmore and who doesn't and who the big staples are and who aren't, we owe the framework of how to think and and decide those things to Rolling Stone and Yon Winter. And for better or worse, and I know that there are other, you know, there's Robert Criscow, there's Trouser Press, there's Cream Magazine, there's Lester Banks, there's, uh, there were other voices, but none of them moved the culture as grossly, uh, grossly in a big way, not gross as in it's gross, but in a big way like Rolling Stone did. And because Rolling Stone decided, Jan Wenner specifically probably, decided early on that Bob Dylan had merit and uh, Bruce Springsteen had merit and John Lennon had merit, but Paul McCartney had less merit and bands mm-hmm. like, you're, I'm, in, I'm an 80s person too, so you know, Tears for Fears don't have any merit and the Smiths don't have any merit, but Jefferson Airplane and Crosby, Stills and Nash do have, you know what I'm saying? He kept that narrative going 
forever. And we still live, I think, under the shadow of that narrative. So if you were a kid like me who loved New Order, you're not going to get as much satisfaction, even though I've read every episode of or every uh, issue of Rolling Stone for the last 35 years, probably. Um, you're not going to get as satisfied with someone speaking your language in that magazine. You're going to be told, no, look over here. You know, um, Gary Clark Jr. is way more important than Echo and the Bunnymen or whatever. You know, and I hope I, I'm sort of I'm on a soapbox a little bit here. But does any of this ring true to you? <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, it, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I would say one. The first thing I always say is that. I don't think there's, I mean, you're right. There's, there's Crawdaddy, there was cream. There were a few other magazines around, but there was really no one who took rock musicians seriously mm -hmm. in the, in this way and popular culture figures who would, who, I mean, Jan very purposely modeled the interviews after the, the Paris review and playboy interviews, mm -hmm. you know, very in-depth interviews with, writers and thinkers he, and he applied that to rock stars which was unheard of yeah, and offensive true. to some people you know people did not take rock stars seriously they did not think they were worthy of in-depth interviews and i think so much of how I, I see their influence in just the myriad of publications that are out there now and that that time magazine and you know what used to be the more mainstream magazines were forced to take a lot of musicians and popular culture people seriously because mm -hmm. of Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. which I think is, is one of the major things he did. But I also think, not to take away from Jan, but from the start, you have people like Ben Fong Torres and David Felton and John Landau and Lester Banks, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. all of these critics who are writing in the, in the magazine, who I think, and, and from the start, that it's amazing having read those first couple of years of the magazine, the letters to the editor, right from the start, they're being criticized for not covering musicians that people like oh, really? putting too much emphasis <laughs> on other musicians yeah. over, you know, they hated Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And, you know, you'll see in the documentary, they very yeah. famously hated Led Zeppelin. You know, the, the debates about who, who deserves to be covered in the magazine and who doesn't are there almost from the start. And, you know, I think Jan was always trying to stay right on the tip, and 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 I and I'm oh gosh, I'm I wish I could remember who who said this to me. One of the writers I I spoke to said, you know, Jan, you know, you you work for like the New Yorker. That that's like the eagle eye view. You know, they're up high, kind of taking the big picture view of what's going on. Jan wanted to be right on the fingertips, yeah. like what is happening right now. And that's constantly changing. And yeah. we have a section in the film about Britney Spears and NSYNC. Yeah. Yeah. And in the late 90s, and, and Alex, my co-director, originally was like resistant to this. I will be honest and say, neither of us are big Britney Spears right. fans. Right. That's not right. music that we listen to. Yeah. Um, but I said, but it's when you look at the covers, we have a, there's a great book that's a collection of all the Rolling Stone magazine covers up to about the year 2000. All of a sudden there is this massive shift in the late nineties and it's just in sync backstreet yeah. boys, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Britney Spears had eight covers in like a mm -hmm. three year span. Right. And it's like, that's what they were covering. Yeah. And that's what was happening in the culture. 
And Jan is unapologetic in the film about covering it. He said, that's what young people were listening to. Right. And you need to know what they were listening to because young people become young adults uh-huh. and, and they become the people who are in charge and you need to know what they like, what yeah. informs them and what's shaping them. I wondered, so, um, you know, when I was, uh, I, so I saw the documentary on HBO when it came out and then I watched it again the other day, you mentioning the Britney Spears and the uh, sync and all that kind of stuff. I wondered why. And again, I'm probably hypersensitive to this because like you, I grew up mostly in the 80s. But to me, you know, Michael Jackson was the biggest thing ever, still is. Uh, Why wasn't Michael getting hit, you know, getting a section in the movie? Why wasn't Michael versus Prince getting a section in the movie? Why wasn't Michael (laughs) and Madonna and Prince and Bruce Springsteen? We can throw in, you know, one of Jan's favorites to... I, I love Bruce Springsteen. I just get sick of tell, people telling me how great he is all the time. <laughs> get, you know, let's, a story about, you know, these big person, not personality, these big personas taking over pop music. You could have even dialed it back a decade and gone into the 70s, talked about the Bee Gees and disco and stuff. Why, you know, why choose Tina Turner and Britney Spears over Michael Jackson, the Bee Gees, whatever? You know what I'm saying? What, 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 yeah. what, why did you weigh those differently? The, well, the first and the easiest answer is a practical one. And that is to license the music of Michael Jackson uh, and Prince is enormously, not only enormously expensive, but often prohibitive. I mean, they, they just don't give you permission to yeah. do that uh, easily okay. and cheaply. And Jerry Hershey did an interview with Michael Jackson for Rolling Stone that I would strongly urge you to read if you've never read it. It is extraordinary. I was desperate to figure out a way how to get it in the film. Sadly, Jerry did not keep the tapes uh, Mm. from that interview. So materials factor into things. Mm. It's a documentary. And we, as you could see, like we were trying to use, you know, we went back to so many different writers um, ben Fonctori's kept his cassette tapes from his mm-hmm. interviews uh, and had this great interview with Tina Turner. Kurt Loder handed us, God knows, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some really great interview material. So it, it, it's a matter of resources as well. Okay, what, what can we it. tell? How can we tell the Michael Jackson story if we can't license yeah. the music and we don't really have much other than the writer, um, who was great, who I interviewed. I mean, I interviewed Jerry. She unfortunately didn't make it in, into the film for this reason, but it was sort of just been like, here's this woman talking about interviewing Michael Jackson. And so, you know, same for Prince. Yeah. Um, huge, huge issues. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying anything I think people don't know because it's very much in the news that his estate is, right. you know, being resolved. And so that, that makes it enormously difficult to include. So yeah. that's, that's a shame. It's, That's, it's, a, it's a real shame. I mean... Little things like that keep them out of the narrative of the history of oh, rock and yeah. roll told by Rolling Stone. And those are some of the biggest players in it. And yet ticky-tack things like royalties, uh, you know, or licensing fees or whatever are going to keep them out of that story. And they don't... They deserve to lead that story. That's too bad. I, I agree. I mean, I still wanted to get the Jerry... That, that interview is just... It's right on the cusp. Uh, thriller has is just about to come out, so it's right. It's him right on the cusp 
of this of superstardom. You know, I think he's I remember that. Star, yeah. But, but it's but it's just right before he enters this sort of stratosphere icon phase, and yeah. uh, it's great. She goes with him to a Queen concert. Oh, and she's oh. backstage with him, and he's hanging out with Freddie Mercury. Mercury, it, I, I strongly urge okay. all your listeners to, to find. I'm sure it's online somewhere. Okay. But we were also trying. You know, you'll notice there wasn't a story about the Rolling Stones. So yeah, the Rolling Stones so. are in it. There's, there's Rolling Stones music and performances. We were also trying. You know, I I don't think, to be honest, we could really come up with something new to say about the Rolling Stones. Yeah, you know, they, there's yeah. a lot of documentaries about the Rolling Stones. And we were trying to find a balance of yes, there's a you know there's a Bruce Springsteen story in the in the film, largely part because John Landau, the magazine's uh-huh. first music critic, became Bruce Springsteen's producer, yeah. and it just seemed like a natural thing to include that. But you know, Tina Turner, there's no doc about Tina Turner, and a lot of young people don't even know who she is. True, she's formative. I mean. Yeah. You talk to Mick Jagger, talk to David Bowie, uh, talk to Keith Richards. Like, it's, it's Tina Turner and Ronnie Spector, yeah. you know, who they love. And Tina went on tour with them. And I, I think she's formative in a lot of ways and important to rock and roll. And that is not, and she's not always included in that narrative. Yeah, that's so that's true. we're trying to strike a balance between people, stories people know or are familiar with or people they're familiar with. And ones that they're maybe not as familiar with. Yeah. Okay. Um, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I like that. And you're right, uh, Tina. I think because she's been retired for so long, we forget what an impact she had on the culture as well. There was one other story that I thought could have or should have been in there, and that was the launch of MTV. And I don't know if that. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know if because then suddenly there's this global radio station heightening the urgency and the um, provocative nature of of rock and roll and rolling stone the whole it's like what you know what the lift all boats the one what's that saying you don't like if one person wins (laughs) everybody wins yes yes so the mtv you know mtv is the rising tide and everyone associated with rock and roll gets lifted to some degree because it's gone up a level in terms of urgency and i would think rolling stone would have benefited from that just by virtue of being in that industry. But uh, maybe not. Maybe that's not an important enough story to tell. But that was one that I was wondering about, too. No, 100%. And we very much we very much looked at that and tried to figure out a way to include it. To be honest, again, part of the... The, the magazine did a big story on MTV at, at one point. But they didn't write about it a lot. Right. And we, we were... One, because we were really trying to have everything be rooted in the writing and the journalism and, and stories. Um, I mean, and they did do the one story, but we, we couldn't quite crack, hmm. you know, how to, how to do it in a way that seemed interesting. And that, you know, the story of MTV has been kind of told before yeah. in, in some other places, but no, I mean, and honestly, it, it seems, it sounds crazy, but four hours, cause four hours is a lot of time. Hmm. You know, there was a lot of stuff we wanted to put in and we couldn't, sure. and we just, yeah. We were also trying to, we very much didn't want to do that kind of special that tries to cram in everything into something. We wanted to have, we were sacrificing breadth for depth, Mm -hmm. basically. And Mm -hmm. and so we wanted to be able to spend a little bit of time with these stories and give them their proper due so you could really get into them. 
And also for the music stories, you notice that we really played the music almost entire songs. Yeah, you know, the music played very that. long. We yeah. wanted people to be, and and we really relied heavily on live performances too. Mm. We wanted that energy and excitement of yeah. the performance aspect of rock and roll, which is what is the magazine is so rooted in. And, yeah. you know, Ben Tong Torres will talk about like going to shows, you know, like that's, um, so we wanted people to have time to sit with it and look, get into the music and get into these people's stories. And that just meant we couldn't do everything we wanted to do. Okay. All right. I'm done with uh, <laughs> my my soapbox issues. I am curious how you, <laughs> how you came around to picking Jeff Daniels as a narrator, as the voice of Rolling we, Stone, essentially. Yeah. we had At first, we thought we would try and get a musician, because uh-huh. you know, it's obvious. But... Then we thought, well, we need someone who's, uh, we need a really good actor. And, you know, uh-huh. all due respect to musicians, the the film encompasses such a wide range of stories, uh, you know, from Patty Hearst to the general uh, Stanley McChrystal story mm-hmm. to, the, you know, we end with the 2016 election. And so we thought, okay, now we're going to need an actor who can really encompass this range we had a short list and jeff daniels was on it jeff daniels is a musician his son is a musician he actually has a recording studio at his house Hmm. he's someone that just he 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 has a great voice that's Uh that's also obvious like he has a great voice and he's a great actor and he just sort of seemed to embody like i you know i think he was the right age and the right sensibility and just someone that was going to we didn't want someone that was going to really over kind of dominate mm-hmm. things too, where you were distracted. I think sometimes when there's a celebrity narrator, it can get a little distracting where you're like, Oh, it's all about the celebrity, you know? Yeah. And, and we knew that he would be someone that would really give himself to the words and yeah. didn't have a huge ego. And lucky for us, Alex then began working with him on a series he, he is doing for Hulu right now called The Looming Tower. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so Alex happened to mention that he was doing this, and Jeff was a big fan of the magazine. Oh, cool. And a, and a big fan of music. So it just sort okay. of kind of happened. I love Jeff. Um, I thought he was an interesting choice because his voice is so mid Midwestern. You know, he's from Michigan. Yeah. He's got that yeah. Michigan voice. Yeah. And you don't think yeah. of Rolling Stone as being, you know, a product of the the Midwest, you think of it as a product of the coasts, you know, it's either what's happening in LA or New York. And so to have, I wondered if it was a conscious decision, well, let's bring folksy Jeff Daniels, who still lives in Michigan and has a Michigan voice in here (laughs) as the voice to say that this is Rolling Stone might be more universal in its appeal than you would think. I don't know. I wondered if that, that that was definitely a factor. I I think he's the voice of the reader, Yeah, you know, and and that's what Rolling Stone, that's what Rolling Stone did, I think. And that was very conscious is like it was created in San Francisco where there was this unique scene, but only a small number of people lived in San Francisco. You know, yeah. the magazine, if you were a kid in Iowa or Michigan or Nebraska or Florida, that was your way of experiencing. Right. Because, again, this is long before MTV or the mm-hmm. Internet or anything. And so you were lucky if maybe one of these bands came to your town. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I, I think he represents the the reader of the magazine. Yeah, good point. That's well said. Okay. And I was curious, one other thing. How did you decide who to put on camera and who not to put on camera? So, for instance, Cameron, yeah. Cr- <laughs> you know, Cameron Crowe is on there, but 
Griel yeah. Marcus and Jane Winner and Ben Fong Torres are not. Are you using are the I assume they all sounded for the most part like new current interviews or were you using, you know, old stuff, not old, you know what I mean? Stuff that had already been pre-recorded yeah. to uh use as voiceover. Almost entirely we did audio interviews and 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 all the interviews are original, um okay. including Jane's and and all the interviews Grails and and all the writers. We had just finished the Sinatra documentary, which the Sinatra documentary doesn't have any on-camera interviews. It's all archival. It's all all archival and all just audio interviews. And that had worked really well for us because on-camera interviews can sometimes be distracting. So we went into it with the the thought that we would do that. And then we thought, at first then we thought, well, okay, Jan Winner, I think we need to see, you know, it's his magazine. He is the magazine. And I think, you know, to I, there's just something about we thought that he needed to, that people needed to to connect with him Good point. in a way that you can only do by seeing him because he's he's so critical. Yeah. So so we just made the decision that we would we would do him on camera. And so there was a period of time where we thought, well, he would be the only one on camera. And then we only did I think two other on camera interviews. One was Cameron Crowe, as mm-hmm. you said, mm-hmm. and that was partly just because. Cameron Crowe is still, I think, such an identifiable, known Good point. person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And part of Cameron's story is that he was so young mm-hmm. when he started with the magazine. And, and I think we thought, like, seeing him, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he still looks so young, which is really kind of uh-huh. annoying. Um, <laughs> you know, <true>. and, um, <laughs> but he looks great, and yeah. he looks so young. And it was sort of, just because kind of who he was uh, is was integral to the story, it felt like you kind of you needed to see him, mm. um, and and it allowed you to truly appreciate how young he was because you see these photographs of him when he's first starting out, yeah. and it's kind of see who he is now. That made sense. And then with with Ice T, I think also because he's he's so known, and frankly, he just he's so dynamic. Yeah. And he just having met him, we were just like. I mean, honestly, we were like, "Why we need to do the ICT documentary?" Yeah, like yeah. he's just so. I, I mean, we just loved him. He, yeah. he just was. So, he, he, first of all, he's incredibly nice. It just is about as low key as you can get. You yeah. know, it showed up to the set by himself, yeah. on time, ready to go. You know, like wow. very professional, but him. just very smart and insightful and funny and entertaining. Just. We were like, uh, you know, you, we yeah. gotta, we gotta see this guy. So, it, you know, is it the most sound logic for for all of this? I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna fall, uh, die on on my sword for that. But yeah. uh, it just sort of evolved that way. Okay, I, let's talk about kind of the legacy of Rolling Stone. What do you, having been so close to Jan and to the magazine, do you think the magazine still matters? And what do you see Jan's legacy and the magazine's legacy? Maybe they're the same thing. Maybe they're different. I don't know. It's a good question. It's funny. One of my young researchers actually started reading the magazine because he was working on the project. He didn't read it prior to the project. Wow. And now he buys it. Uh, He subscribes to it, which was surprising to me. I mean, I I think, you know, in terms of of its relevance now, I, I still think they're doing great journalism. Uh-huh. And, you know, we end with 
with Matt Taibbi and Janet Reitman on 2016, which I think was some great coverage. Yeah. You know, we one of the stories we included in this was the UVA story. You know, we wanted to be honest and upfront about uh, about that story and about you know the hit they took mm -hmm. deservedly be, mm -hmm. because of that. And uh, and Jan is is pretty candid about it in the magazine. You know, and you're doing journalism for 50 years you're, you're going to make some mistakes. And this was a, this was a big one. And I think it hurt them in a big way that they haven't maybe fully recovered from, but I do think they still, I, I still think they're relevant. I, I they certainly, I, I'm not going to say they have the same power and relevance they yeah. did 50 years ago, or even maybe 25 years ago. But I, I think they're still important. And I think there's still a place to go to get, quality writing about music mm -hmm. and popular culture and about politics. I, our guiding principle, honestly, for the stories that we were including in this were we wanted the stories to be stories you couldn't find anywhere else, but Rolling Stone, uh, you know, okay. you, you yeah. weren't going to read about this. You weren't going to read this story in the New Yorker yeah. or the New York times magazine or, or, you know, what people magazine or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. magazine, is out there. We want, we wanted each story to be something like this is a unique magazine and this is their unique voice. So I still think they have a unique voice that's worth reading. I, I, I think Jan and, and the magazine's legacy are definitely inter, intertwined, but I, I think the magazine, you know, it's tough. Jan started the magazine and every writer I, I spoke to, you know, the book really gets into a lot of you know, the dirty stuff, as you said, as you yeah. said which we didn't really get into. <laughs> Universally across the board, every writer said to me, you know, how much they were frustrated and hated Jan uh -huh. and how much they admired, admired him and loved him. Yeah. You know, like they all give him enormous credit um, as an editor and for giving them. I mean, when you go back and read some of those early stories, they are long. Yeah. They are right. You know, one of the stories we didn't get to include that breaks my heart is their coverage of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Oh, it's incredible. Really? It's incredible. It's better than anything else we read on the Exxon Valdez. The writer said Jan sent him up there for a few months. At one point, the writer said he thought he was ready to come back. And Jan was like, well, stay if you need to. Like huh. editor, magazine editors don't say that, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. And, so many writers gave him credit for giving them both the, the time to report the story and the space to properly report it. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important part of his legacy and yeah. the magazine's legacy, but you know, uh, their frustrations about money and other things are, are very well documented sure. as well. So, you know, okay. he's, and he'll admit it. I, I mean, I think he's pretty honest about, you know, right some things he's done in his past. Yeah, so, right, right. Um, okay. You know, it's, it's a magazine. It's, it's a rock and roll magazine, so you don't yeah. get that without sex, drugs, and rock and Absolutely. roll. Absolutely. Very um, true. Okay. Now, before we get into the Eagles, what are you doing? What are you working on now? I, I Unfortunately, I can't talk about it. Oh, it's okay. A, it's, political, it, it's a political doc that you'll see in November, okay. um, which it hasn't been announced. So, I, okay. unfortunately, but... Um, do you I'm have any taking more a break music from things? Music. Oh, you are. I don't okay. have anything music lined up at the moment. I love music documentaries, but uh -huh. they're 
they're challenging. Yeah. So I kind of have always, after I do one, I need a little bit of a break before I dive into the, okay. the, the next one. So, and do you um, work directly for Alex Gibney? And we should establish, I, I, I feel like in some ways we've sort of skirted over him or made him sound like less of a big deal than he is. I mean, to me, he and Errol Morris are like the two most important documentary documentarians of the last, I don't know, 20 years for Errol's been around forever, but Alex is the name in good documentaries at this point, if you ask me. So you've, you're working with the best of the best at this point. He did the Scientology documentary, anything worth anything right now probably has Alex's name on it. So are you, do you work for him or does he bring you on per project when he feels like it's the right thing? How does it work? He well, first, I first I want to echo everything you said. I mean, I and I, I I certainly don't mean to give him short shrift. And we, you know, directed this together. He brought me onto this project, yeah. and he, I, you know, the great sort of, you know, again another great stroke of luck for me was to to have worked with him so many years ago on Taxi to the Dark Side, and to continue to work. I've pretty, I've worked pretty consistently for him after the George Harrison documentary finished in 2011. I've, I've, I, I technically I freelance, you okay. know, so I don't, I'm not on staff at his company, but because I've worked for him so long, his company has really grown enormously over the years. And, and because I've worked with him for so long, he'll, sometimes he'll bring me on to produce something. Sometimes I'll, I'll come on to consult or help set something up and then move on to something else. You know, honestly, whatever he asks me to do, I'm always, <laughs> you know, it. honored and happy to do sure. it. You know, okay. it's it's a real privilege. So, okay. yeah, I mean, he's done so many great things. He has a series on Netflix, which I didn't work on, but I I, I would love to plug because it's great. It's called Dirty Money, mm-hmm. um, which is a documentary series, kind of in the vein of Enron. Yeah. So yeah, whatever. I'm I'm lucky. He'll you you know literally one one day you know he'll come in and you know speaking of the Eagles. We were actually waiting for the financing for the Frank Sinatra documentary to come together. Mm. And he literally said to me one day, do you want to work on this documentary about the Eagles while we're waiting for Sinatra to start? And I said, oh, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> I, I, you know, I need a job. Now let's talk about the Eagles. Did you have <laughs> any idea when you, because that one is a, that was a cultural moment. I mean, it's still out there because of Netflix, people discovering it and it's, it's become the new narrative of what the Eagles' history is, and and but maybe not for in a in the best way, because so many people were sort of taken aback by the personalities involved in that band, that it went from being like, oh, the Eagles put out a lot of great hits, they sell a lot of records, they're a really good band, to like, whoa, these are the guys. This is you know they their story has <laughs> changed. It's been influenced forever by your documentary. That's the new benchmark in the eagle story did you have any idea definitely not and and i i want to give credit um alex and i produced that documentary but it was directed by a woman named alice nelwood who is is a really great film filmmaker she had edited enron the the enron Mm -hmm. documentary and she and alex directed a documentary called magic trip which was about kim kesey Allison is such a genius and she has such a, she had such a great way with the band and, and getting them just to open up and be honest. And I think that, I think we hit the band at the right moment. And, and I will say that the band came to us. We, we didn't go to them. They, they came to us. They, which was great because they were ready for it. Okay. You know, they were, they were ready to be 
honest about themselves and, yeah. and about what happened. And my favorite part of that whole experience in the documentary is so, so many people, it's by far, when I say I work in documentaries, and people say, well, what did you work on? And I always say that because everyone's seen it and loves it. And by far, what everyone said is, you know, I don't even really like the Eagles. Yeah. I love that documentary. <laughs> That's it. I'm one <laughs> and, of those. I've never know, liked the Eagles, but I, I love that movie. I, I mean, I grew up, the Eagles are like the soundtrack of my childhood. Really? You know, I, yeah. I grew up as a little kid in the 70s. My father was a swim coach. I used to hang out at the pool every day. And the lifeguards, you know, who were the high school students had, you know, it's, I mean, you wouldn't have called it classic rock then because it yeah. was rock in right. the 70s. And, you know, it was like Eagles and Elton John and, yeah. you know, uh, Billy Joel. Like, that's sure. just my childhood. And so I, I was like, I... It, it's beyond music to me. It's like a, this is a part of my my life, and so I, I have to work on this. But I, I just give them so much credit for being so honest um, uh, about who they were and who they are and yeah. the struggles they have. I think honestly, the thing that I, I particularly love is, um, you know, there. And I'm not speaking out of school here. You know, Bernie Ledin was on the outs with yeah. the band. You know, he he had. He and Glenn had had, you see it in the, in the film, and Glenn had had a huge fight. And I don't think, I think he had spoken with Don Henley a little bit over the years, but I don't think he'd really spoken with Glenn. After the film, Bernie and Glenn reached out to each other. Good. And, lo, and lo and behold, those last few years when Glenn was on tour, B- Bernie went on tour with them. No way. You know, and they were able to come to a place. And I think they both just sort of thought, man, you know, yeah. that stuff happened so long ago. It's yeah. so unimportant now. And, you know, I, I always just felt so happy, especially, you know, now that Glenn, you know, rest in peace has, has right. passed, like right. that they got to reconcile um, that's before amazing. Glenn died. So I, that's always, I always feel like that's the greatest thing to come out of that yeah. documentary. It's just, those guys got to perform again together right. and to, to come together. So right. Okay. We're, now, do you... Per, are you personally in the room during any of these interviews or are you behind the scenes later like I don't I don't even know what it is you do exactly the <laughs> yeah. you know the producer's job no, is always different yeah I mean for the so for Rolling Stone I actually conducted uh, you know a lot of those interviews Alex conducts some I conduct some if I'm not conducting the interview then I'm in the room or depending on the room I'm sometimes outside of the room so um, Allison Elwood would have she conducted the interviews for History of the Evil okay. and I was there for, for some of those I got to be there for Joe Joe Walsh's interview yeah. which was awesome nice. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of people who don't like the Eagles but they love Joe Walsh yep. you know yep. you, That's very you true. can't not love Joe Walsh he's yep. like this then Buddhist rock star yeah. he's just amazing he's, and uh, so that was that was really uh, really fun and um, yeah it, it depends project to project what the producer does and I'm fortunate to have a pretty hands-on role in, in a lot of these films okay well uh, Lar- thank you for talking to me and and I hope I didn't talk your ear off or anything but I've just been immersed ever since your documentary first hit I watched it in an airport in November <laughs> and um <laughs> And then I read the book a couple months later, and then I rewatched the documentary the other day. And of course, I've seen the James Brown and the Frank Sinatra and the Eagles and all those other ones too. And so I really just wanted to get into the, you know, into the muck 
on this stuff. And so I, I hope that was okay. I really wanted to have a conversation with somebody and I'm glad you did that with me. Thank you for doing that. Oh no, thank you. I, I just hope it's interesting. I, I, I do I'm too. thrilled that you wanted to, <laughs> to talk to me about it, but yeah, it's rare that I talk about this stuff. So okay. um, yeah, I hope, I hope your listeners find it, find it interesting. I do too. And, I think they and, will. Uh, They're music lovers and I'm guessing most of them have seen that documentary or if they haven't, they mean to, or maybe they will now. Jan's just a, you know, he's a figure that people have strong opinions about, especially in this day and age. And uh, so I just wanted to kind of dissect it a little bit. So anyway, tell us once again. No, so I'm this not. is um, the movie is is going to be put into a series and released on streaming platforms. Tell us one more time what's going on. It's so it's it's going to be released on iTunes and and I think it actually I honestly I'm not sure what date what the date is and I don't know what the date this will air so it might be might be already out in the world on iTunes and right. on demand okay and I think you can still even see it on HBO uh, as well so, I did just um, the other day so it is still on there yeah okay yeah okay. so uh, whatever however whatever platform you can see it I, I do hope I, I have to think I I, I I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast and I have to think oh. that it's something that your listeners would be very interested. Oh, good. The, the beauty of it too is that if there's a story you're not particularly interested in, it ends pretty quickly and goes on to something else. <laughs> true. So the odds are those, there's something there that you'll be interested. I in. I think there's a lot of value <laughs> in it. There's some, and especially if you're, I mean, the Rolling Stone's been my Bible for 30 years or so, and so I have an emotional vested interest in all these stories and the history of it all. So anyway, thank you for talking with me, Blair. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I really enjoyed this and, and I, I really appreciate you uh, spending, you know, taking this seriously. Sure. Uh, and uh, I, I very much appreciate that. Absolutely. There you have it, Blair Foster. I, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I loved it. But then again, I got to talk about all the stuff I've really been wanting to chew on for a while. So I hope we didn't get too deep in the weeds for casual, regular people who may or may not care about Yawn or Rolling Stone magazine. But for me, that was just the kind of conversation I've been wanting to have lately. So thank you to Blair. Thank you very much. And uh, anyone, like I said before, if you have not seen this movie, go check it out on iTunes or whatever you want to do to find it. It's worth seeing, okay? Now, next Tuesday, we'll be back with a regular episode like normal. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Us a better way. We got all the fear.
millions that money can buy So we never have to be alone And we keep getting richer But we can't get our picture On the cover of the Rolling Stone Rolling Stone Wanna see my picture on the cover Wanna buy five copies for my mother Wanna see my smiling face Oh, we will make a phone call. 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 Oh,